The first reading is Genesis chapter 23, reading verses 1 to 20. Sarah's death and burial. Sarah lived for 127 years. This was the length of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at Keriath Abba, that is Hebron, in the land of, of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham rose from be beside his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a stranger and an alien residing among you. Give me property among you for a burying place so that I might bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead at the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you any burial ground for burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, son of Zohar, so that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all of whom went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, in the presence of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, if you only will listen to me, I will get the price of the field, accept it from me, so that I might bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, my lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area passed to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, in the presence of all who went at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave at the field of Machpelah facing the Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it passed from the Hittites into Abraham's possession as a burying place. Thanks be to God for his word.
Luke chapter 10, reading verses 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him back to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to come along today. I'm sure some of you didn't invite me, but thank you for being here to listen to what I've got to say. And I was asked if I was the preacher or the speaker. I'm not preaching. Um, hopefully what I've got to say, um, will, though, will be something that you can reflect on, something that will give you things to pray for, for sure, um, and will raise your awareness a little bit of the situation in Israel and Palestine that we hear about from time to time on, on the news, but very little of, of, of what's going on there really hits the headlines. Um, so I'm going to be speaking for about 20-25 minutes um, and uh, in the session I really want to speak, oh, uh, let me just say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I might be waving a bit so that the slides get changed because we haven't got the technology for me to be able to do that and I'm also going to be using, whoops, hopefully, is this going to work? Oh. Yeah, this pointer to point out some things and I'm mindful that those, those slides both, screens both sides and I don't want to be running from side to side so I'm going to point at it on this one I guess I'm, I'm guessing being good Baptist that you probably won't move but if anybody does want to move over a bit so that you can see that screen and things that I'm pointing to then please do um, so mainly I want to speak to you about this this gentleman please <laughs> 
um, Bada Al-Tamimi, who's a shopkeeper um, in Hebron. And, um, but before I, I speak in more detail about him, I want to provide a bit of background information about IAPI, the Ecumenical Accompaniment Programme in Palestine and Israel, and the situation there. So, um, IAPI, the Ecumenical Accompaniment Programme in Palestine and Israel, is a bit of a mouthful, so IAPI for short. It's a World Council of Churches programme that was set up in 2002 as a response to requests from church leaders in the Holy Land. As you all know, the, the, the region has been a time of conflict for many, many years. But in the early 2000s, it was particularly violent. The church leaders there called for um, a cessation of violence from both sides. Uh, but for the international community, and particularly the churches, to do something. There was no independent UN monitors on the ground or anything like that. But, and it was a result of that that IAPI was established. And EAs have been on the ground ever since, up until COVID. Um, and, but now, just from the beginning of this year, it's been possible for us to be back there again. So EAs are, are ordinary people um, from all walks of life, from about 20 different countries, who volunteer to go and spend three months living in Israel and Palestine. And they live in the communities that they're serving. So it's a really good way of witnessing what's going on. There are four main aspects to the work, if you like. So the first one is to monitor and report on human rights violations. So this picture on the left is a soldier firing tear gas at children, actually, who've been throwing stones. Um, and we report to the United Nations um, local consulates and so on. Um, it's also to provide what we call a protective presence. So by being there, it's less likely that some of the human rights abuses will happen. So we might be escorting children to school or, as in this picture, um, escorting shepherds as, as they go out and, and take their sheep out for pasturing. Uh, and we show solidarity with both Israeli and Palestinian organisations that are seeking a just peace in the region where everyone can live in safety and with dignity and with full equal rights. Um, and this picture on the right-hand side with a stop the occupation sign is um, an Israeli group of women called um, uh, Women in Black who protest every Friday with a view to ending the, the uh, occupation. Um, the other thing that EAs do is when they get back, they're expected to speak about, this, about what they've seen and the stories of the people that they've met. So that's one of the reasons why I'm here today, um, to raise awareness, but also to encourage others to take action. So I'll be suggesting some things that you might want to do towards the end of this talk. And I think it's really important to say IAPI is not pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian, but it is pro-human rights. And so everything that we do is underpinned by international humanitarian law. So I'm, th th there's a long history that could be got into about the situation in Israel and Palestine, and I'm not going to do that, but I just wanted to highlight a couple of key events. Um, the State of Israel, um, as you may know, came into being in 1948. It declared itself an independent state. There had long been what was, at the time previously was quite a small Jewish community living peaceably alongside Palestinians. From the late 19th century, when Zionism, the idea of there being a homeland for Jewish people in Palestine, came about, there was an increase in Jewish immigration, and obviously particularly around the time of the war and the Holocaust. So people, uh, Jewish people fled to, to that, that area to escape the uh, persecution that they were experiencing. In 1948, when Israel declared itself an independent state, then triggered a war, uh, and as a result of that, over 700,000, probably 750,000 Palestinians fled their homes or were forcibly removed from their homes in what became Israel. So that's the kind of 
look at a kind of pale color that's marked Israel on the map. When the armistice line was drawn, the areas that are kind of green, are they green? So the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan Heights were, were the areas that were, were, were for the Palestinian population. But as you'll probably be aware, tensions continued, and then there was another war in 1967, um, and, and that's when Israel expanded its territory and occupied the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza, and the Golan Heights. And uh, today in my talk, I'm going to focus on the West Bank. So that's this area here. Um, and the occupation of the West Bank continues to this day. It's, it's occupied by Israel. And Hebron, which is the place, there, there are five different, six different um, places where ecumenical companies are based and complete their placements. I was in Hebron, which is just down here. So in the south of the West Bank, just a few miles south of uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So Hebron, known as Al-Khalil by the locals, is important for both Jews and Muslims. The reason we had that reading from Genesis earlier on was, was to highlight that. It was the place that, that where Abraham bought some land to bury his wife, Sarah. But in caves under this building, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah are all buried. Uh, this building is half a mosque and half a um, synagogue. Uh, known as the Cave of the Patriarchs or the Cave of Machpelah, as we heard in the reading to the Jewish population, and the Ibrahimi Mosque to the Muslim population. And it's not high on the list of Christian pilgrimages, but I'm really pleased to see you, the group that's going are going to visit here. So um, that's good. Uh, historically, Hebron, like other areas, had a small Jewish community that lived peaceably alongside Palestinians, although there were episodes of tension um, and deaths on both sides when episodes erupted. But following the 1967 occupation, some Jewish Israelis began to campaign to reclaim all of what had been the biblical lands of Israel, Judea and Samaria, and some of them began settling in the Hebron area. So it was in the 1970s that settlements, which I'm sure you've heard about in the news, but settlements were developed. But settlements are housing units built on Palestinian land, but they're for Jewish Israelis only. So only Jewish Israelis can live in them, and they're illegal under international law. Next slide, please. Yeah. So settle expansion continued in Hebron in the 70s and 80s. And then the next kind of key event that shaped the way that things are today is the Goldstein Massacre. Barak Goldstein was an American Jewish settler, um, an extremist, who went into the mosque and gunned down 29 uh, Palestinians and, and injured many others. And as a consequence of that, that's why the mosque stroke synagogue is now, it's a building with a barrier down the middle, half mosque, half synagogue. But as the, part of the fallout from that was that in 1997, the whole of Hebron was divided into two areas, which have become known as H1 and H2. So H1 is a modern Palestinian city under the control of the Palestinian Authority, and I'm not going to talk any, any more about that. Um, H2 is what was the old city. It was the commercial, the Palestinian commercial center, not only really for Hebron, but for the whole of the south of the West Bank. And it's in the old city that the settlements are located. And Hebron is unique in that settlements are located right in the center of the city. So there are about seven or 800 what have been termed radical or ideological settlers that live there. 
So they're people that choose to live in, live in settlements. They want the center of Hebron to be a solely Jewish-Israeli community and for that community to expand. Uh, the whole of H2 is under Israeli military control and Israel's policy in this area is one of separation. So ostensibly to protect the safety of the uh, Jewish population there, the, the uh, policy is to keep separate the Palestinians and the Israelis. And in order to do that, there's a strong military presence. So there's any one time there's at least 700 Israeli defense forces, Israeli soldiers there. So one for each settler. And I, I wanted to say, not all settlers are ideological extremist settlers, but um, many of them in Hebron are, and I, I can talk more at the end if people want to know about that. So moving on to Bada, this is Bada Al-Tamimi. He's a Palestinian man. Him and his family have lived in Hebron for generations. He's a family man, and he runs this shop, which is just on the outskirts of the uh, old city in, in the souk. This map shows H1 is on the outside, which I'm not talking about, but H2 is this whole area in the center. And the settlements that I talked about are the blue areas. So there's, oh, I need to get closer. connects them is, is the road that links the settlements and forms part of this protective space. The Israeli soldiers talk about protective space, um, so separating the settlers and the, and the Palestinians. And on that, on that red road, and mainly the orange roads as well, Palestinian access and movement is severely restricted. So no Palestinian vehicles at all are allowed, and pa Palestinian pedestrians are allowed, but mainly only those people that are still living in that area. And Bada's shop is pointed there, it's, it's right on, on opposite the Bet Ramana settlement. So I've got a short video clip later. If you imagine that you're standing where Bada was with his back to the shop, this next video will show you what it's like and then I'm going to point out some of the things that are in it. Is this uh, great? Um, so, so if we can, if we can have the next slide, please. So, so this is Bet Hadassah settlement. This modern building here. These roads here are part of the um, Palestinian market area, and this is obviously a military watchtower. Next one, please. This gate is directly opposite Bader's shop um, and the area this side of the fence or the gate is where the Palestinian market is and where there is free movement for Palestinians. The other side is the area that's part of the protective zone where Palestinians have very limited access if at all but Jewish Israelis have free movement. These buildings, oh, no, sorry, <laughs> these buildings here 
were Palestinian businesses that have subsequently been closed because of the lack of access. In around the 2000s, when there was really a lot of uh, violent activity, the Israeli military closed down uh, under military order about 500 businesses in this what's become the protected area. So people couldn't operate from their businesses and about a thousand others closed down because either customers couldn't get to the shops or the shopkeepers, if they were trying to keep them open because of the lack of vehicle access, couldn't get their goods, you know, they, they replenished their stock. Um, and although you can't see it from here, just around the corner from here is um, uh, an army base. Thank you. This is Bet Romana settlement, so this is directly opposite Badish shop, and these buildings here are, were Palestinian businesses, but they, the doors are all welded up and they're not permitted to, to function from there now. The next one. So here, um, here's a, a, yeah, you can see the military, tower, military watchtower there, and another one here, and another one here, and the main entrance to the um, souk is down here. So that... That's what you were seeing. So if we go back to this map, this red road here is the one that you were just looking at. The, the gate was here and you were looking up here. So across that crossroads is, was down here was where you, where you, would, you could kind of see the road crossing. Um, and what I haven't mentioned so far is that all the way along this route are a whole range of fences and other barriers that prevent access to this road. And there are also military checkpoints, which I'm not sure if they're really very clearly visible on this map, but the little red crosses are military checkpoints. Um, so Bet Salem, which um, I understand that people that are going in the, of the visit are going to go and meet Bet Salem, but it's Bet Salem are an Israeli human rights organization. They have identified in this area of H2 in Hebron, 22 checkpoints and 64 barriers. Uh, so in, in this next slide, we can see an example of some of the barriers that are built. So the one picture on the left-hand side is obviously um, a wire fencing and razor wire, the one in the middle, a metal gate, and the one on the, on the right, a wall, and that's Shehuda Street, that main red street, the other side of the wall. And this next slide shows the main checkpoint that leads into Shehuda Street. So any Palestinians that want to go into that area have to enter it through this military checkpoint through one of those um, turnstiles. And there's actually a primary school just about 100 yards down the road from here. And the kids that live outside of that immediate area have to go through this, and the teachers have to go through this, this military checkpoint to get to school and another one actually before they can get into the school. So the next video is just looking at the other side of Shehuda Street. So um, here you can see closed down businesses. The modern building at the top is, is the, back, the kind of backside of Avram Avinu settlement. And you can see that it's actually very quiet. The only people you're likely to see there are um, Israeli settlers, the Israeli military and occasional tour groups. I don't know if you'll be allowed to go down there, but you might be able to when you're there. So what's it like for Bada running his shop in this area? Well, this is um, a picture of the Bet Romana settlement directly opposite Bada's shop. And these are settlers that are on the roof um, of, of the settlement. So to achieve their ends of wanting the, the center of Hebron to become a Jew, Jewish-Israeli community, a solely Jewish-Israeli community, then they harass, intimidate, and are violent towards the, the local Palestinians. 
So it, it's quite a common occurrence for settlers to collect on Betramana roof and start throwing stones at the people underneath and the shops along, uh, uh, along that, that stretch where Bader's shop is. Um, and this quote from Betzalem endorses that this is a common occurrence. It says, repeated assaults and violent abuse have become routine near the settlement points. Physical assault, stone throwing, hurling of refuse, sand, water, chlorine, empty bottles and other objects, as well as destruction of merchant stands and verbal insults are commonplace. And the picture at the bottom is, is some, some of Badder's um, stock that's been damaged, but you know, more significantly, people get injured and this little boy had been hit by a stone that had been thrown by a, um, a settler. And what Bader says is, despite those military um, observation posts that you could see in that picture very close by, that actually the soldiers often don't, either can't or won't intervene when the, uh, when the settlers are attacking the locals. So that's also endorsed by, uh, by, local, uh, by Palestinian human rights groups. So Bet Salem say that soldiers are on every street corner wherever there are Israeli settlements, but they rarely intervene when settlers attack Palestinians. And Breaking the Silence, which is a group of people that have served in the Israeli Defence Force and give their testimonies about their experiences of serving in, in the um, defense, Israeli Defence Force, say that the sole mission there, so they're talking about Hebron, is to protect the Jews. The Palestinians don't matter at all. And in fact, soldiers' actions can make things more, more difficult for the Palestinians and their shopkeepers and their potential customers because when tensions rise and maybe there's a collection of Palestinians grouping together underneath or around Bader's shop, then the, the um, soldiers may start firing tear gas and sound bombs. These are um, spent tear gas canisters um, and Bader's got a whole collection of these that have been fired in and around the area of his shop. So one of the incidents that happened when I was there was that um, allegedly a settler on the roof of that settlement had thrown a stone down towards Bader's shop and a child had picked it up and thrown it back. Um, very soon afterwards, soldiers appeared from behind that gate uh, from the army base and asked Bader and his neighboring shopkeepers to close their shops. Um, they refused unless they had a written military order, you know, making it a legal obligation for them to do so. And that's Badder and his neighbour talking to the soldiers. But then what happened was that more soldiers appeared and they blocked off the entrance to the souk. So, so this is just one side and the other side of the square, there were other soldiers the other side. And you can see there's a couple of um, Palestinians where they're shopping that were wanting to go through into the souk and they weren't allowed to do so. And this standoff, they, they said that they were keeping this all closed until they'd found the child that had thrown the stone. Um, I don't think they ever did, and this, this situation went on for about an hour and a half, two hours, when people weren't allowed access through. So just looking at a couple of other pictures to show what life is like in the old city for Palestinians. This is that, along that, that first picture that I showed with the roads going up to the right-hand side. So these are other bits of, of, of the um, areas where Palestinians have got their businesses. And if you remember that quote about rubbish and water and all the rest of it being thrown down, at this part of the, um, of the souk, the local shopkeepers have had these quite rigid metal structures put in with fabric over the top to try and protect them from, this is um, Behadassah settlement, from the settlers in Behadassah throwing things down on top of them. And in this next picture, which is in another part of the souk where the, the, the structures are a bit less robust, 
but you can see in the picture on the right um, where rubbish has been collected that's been thrown down and on the left hand side I don't know if you can see very clearly uh, oops. just here there's a pipe um, and the children, mainly children is what I saw, um, were pouring water and this pipe is set up so that it diverts the water so that it directly drops down onto the, uh, onto the shopkeepers and their, and their property underneath. So for those businesses that are still going in the old city, trading is very difficult. They've got the legacy of COVID, they've got competition from cheap foreign imports, um, customers fear coming into the souk because of the settler aggression um, and, the, and the tensions and tourists are also wary of coming because there are, are quite frequent or there can be quite frequent clashes between Palestinians and, and uh, the Jewish Israelis. So it wasn't at all unusual for us as we went around the souk every day to speak to shopkeepers who hadn't sold anything at all all day and sometimes they might have not have sold anything for several days. Um, and often if they did sell something, it was just for a few shekels, so just for, you know, less than five pounds. So as a consequence of this, shops are closing and people are moving out. So what does international law say about this? Well, the Fourth Geneva Convention, Article 49, says that the occupying power, so that's Israel, shall not deport or transfer, transfer parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies. So very clearly, with the settlers being in the centre of Hebron, that is part of the civilian population. And it also says that individual or mass forcible transfers are prohibited, and many human rights organisations argue that the living conditions that have been created in H2, so the severe movement restrictions, the settler violence and so on, are intended to coerce people into leaving. In fact, many people have both businesses and people that live there. Um, and so that, that could be considered to be a forcible transfer. And then Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention says an occupying government may not use collective punishment or intimidation against the occupied population. And uh, clearly the, the example I gave where, where people were not allowed access to the souk because of the behaviour allegedly of one young boy is, is, a, is a kind of a collective punishment. So what hope is there? This, this is painted on the wall just down the road from the Ibrahimi Mosque. And what can be done to change the situation? Well, it's, it's difficult. It's a very difficult situation. But what is the way forward? We often play for peace in the Holy Land, don't we? But I think what, what would be wanted is a just peace based on international law, negotiated by Israelis and Palestinians, where both Palestinians and Israelis live in safety and with dignity, with full equal rights. So most Palestinians, many internationals, including Yappi, and some Israelis argue that for a just peace to be achieved, then there, there needs to be an end to the military occupation. And I think probably the only way that's going to happen is by pressure from international governments and civil society. So coming back to where I started off about what you can do, um, I would encourage you to learn more, especially those of you who are going to visit Hebron shortly. There's a, there's a short film, it's about 20 minutes, that you, um, I've put the Vimeo link in here, but you could find it, there's a YouTube version as well, called Mission Hebron. And that is a film that's been made uh, about the experiences of Israeli Defence Force soldiers that have served in Hebron, talking about their experiences. I would encourage you, if you haven't been to Israel or Palestine, to go. Great for those of you who are going very soon, but there are a range of organisations that don't do the kind of traditional pilgrim trips, and they include Amos Trust, the Israeli Committee Against 
house demolitions and Zaytun. And there are some organizations now post-COVID that do kind of virtual tours so you can sit in your own home, as it were, and get a bit more of an idea of what life's like. The other thing you can do is follow IAPI on social media. If you're a social media person, um, you can scan the QR code on the left and that will take you to the Facebook, Twitter and Instagram accounts of IAPI. Or if you want to get the one on the right, that takes you to the eyewitness blogs. While um, people are serving as EAs in, in Israel-Palestine, they write blogs about, the, about some of their experiences and the people that they've met. So they're available there. Um, and there are also some suggestions. There's a take action now button there that you can click, which will suggest some things that you can do as well. So you might want to write to your MP about a particular situation. You might want to think about becoming an EA yourself. Um, you can speak to Jean about that as well, because Jean's been an EA in the past. You might want to make a financial do uh, donation. I've got um, quite a lot of these leaflets with me, which I'll be very happy to give to people if they want them afterwards. And generally, if I wasn't talking within the context of a church service, we'd have a kind of question and answer session now, but it's probably not that appropriate within a church service. But I'm happy to stay after the service for as long as people want to ask me questions or discuss the situation, whether that's very practical things because you're going on the trip and want to know what it's like getting through the airport at the moment, or whether it's because of any of the other stuff that I've raised. So thank you so much for your time, um, and do come and speak to me afterwards. Thank you very much, Sean. Let's just spend a few moments in quiet and think of those things. Thank you. <clears throat> Let us come to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> and in these strange times when people have been moved by so many different events recently, um, <clears throat> including the enormous state funeral on Monday, uh, let's just briefly uh, give, acknowledge and give thanks, perhaps for the memory of a life well-led, remembering seven decades of selfless duty summed up service in life, hope in death. Lord, for it is in death and bereavement that we acknowledge the debilitating pain and burden of loss. And therefore let us hold in our hearts and prayers all whose sense of grief and sadness will be rekindled at this time by the late sovereign's passing. But we recognize in these moments too, that no high office can protect us from our own mortality. And therefore let us give thanks to God for the gift and promise of eternal life placed within our grasp through Christ's redeeming sacrifice on the cross. Lord, we share a tarnished world, a world overwhelmed and disfigured by bloodshed, hate and violence. The daily reports of relentless military aggression in the Ukraine remain heavy on our hearts and especially now with reports of further possible escalation. But it is easy to neglect in prayer 
are the outposts of conflict which often lie buried in media reports. We think of Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Haiti, Yemen, and what we have heard today already, and the seemingly intractable problems of the Middle East. Lord, how easy it is to be neglectful in prayer about those more remote, far-flung regions of the world that seem to have little direct impact on our lives. But we pray for resolution in all of these conflict zones. God of peace, we yearn for that promised security, praying that thou wilt listen to these, the deepest cries of our hearts, and bring to an aching, deeply hurting world your sovereign word of peace. Let us remember now the huge number of students and young people who will be starting pastures new at this time. Many will be nervous and apprehensive about new beginnings in a fresh environment. Others looking forward to new academic challenges ahead. Some of these will be known to us and we remember them now in prayer. Let us pray for the sick, sick in body and in mind, for those recently hospitalized, for those receiving palliative care, and for the many waiting anxiously for critical news surrounding their health. May thy reassuring love enfold and comfort them. We pray too for the unemployed, the housebound, the lonely, for those struggling with debt, many fearing the cost of simply keeping warm this winter, and for all who struggle to make sense of the present. Lord of compassion and healing, hear our prayers. But finally, in these still anxious times, let us take inspiration and rejoice in the words of an opening service here recently. We are a people of hope. We are a people of faith. We are a people of love. We are God's people. Lord of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. Amen. Eternal God, our beginning and our end, continue to accompany us this day, on this day's journey. Dawn on our darkness. Open our eyes to praise you for your creation and to see the work you set before us to do today. Take us and use us to bring to, to, bring to others the new life and hope you give in Jesus. And the blessing of God be with us all. Amen.